let's remain standing if you're able, out of respect for God and His Word, and the reading of Scripture will come from John's Gospel, chapter 1, and we'll read verses 19 through 28. That's going to be the text for this morning, as we're working our way through the Gospel of John. Beginning there at verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word, most of all for the sake of your own glory. We pray, O Lord, that through the Spirit you would shine the light of Christ and his gospel in our hearts, that we would be provoked to repentance and faith in him, and even if we're already Christians this morning, that we would be led to a further adoration, respect, and love for you, the triune God, and what you've done through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So we have completed John's prologue, his introduction to his account of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we've seen that in the beginning was the Word, that this Word became flesh, and that He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. They did not receive Him. And in verse 14, John says, That he was full of grace and truth. That Jesus Christ came bringing grace and truth. That he is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies made about him. And so he brings grace. It's not as though that the gospel is contrary to the law of God. The law of God and the Pentateuch, they show us our need for Christ. And even in the Old Testament, God spoke about the one who was to come. And so there in verse 19, where we begin today, this is where the action begins. And so we've had the introduction, we've had the preview, the trailer, and and now the action begins, and it begins with John the Baptist. Now we've already been introduced to him in the previous text, and we saw that last time. But note the way that this begins. It begins with this interrogation of John the Baptist by those who were sent from the Jews. We aren't told much about John at all, in fact. 
And the reason is because the Gospel of John has a bit of a different purpose. You know, all the Gospel writers, the four Gospel writers, they talk about the same thing, but they come at it from a different angle because they have a different view and mind. Ultimately, it is to glorify God and tell us about Jesus and our need for Him. But Matthew, for instance, really is proving that Jesus is King of the Jews. And it's written, it's geared more to uh, the, the early Jewish audience. And of course, it's profitable. It is for us today. But we have to understand these things in their context. Well, John's Gospel is written to convince us to give testimony that Jesus is the Christ. And that believing in His name, John 20, 31 says, we might have eternal life. That's His purpose. And so He begins with the testimony, this evidence concerning John the Baptist. And so as we think about that, uh, what I want us to do this morning is just to walk through the text. We'll consider John's testimony from long ago. And then after that, we'll consider the lessons for us today. So we're going to look at John's testimony here, what happened. And then we're going to make several lessons or note several lessons for us today. So John's testimony from long ago. As we read, we see there in verse 19 that there's this delegation from the Sanhedrin. In verse 19, it says, this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. So, in the Gospel of John, when he talks about the Jews generally like this, it isn't very favorably that he speaks about them. Because the Jews are the ones who really attack the person and work of Christ in the Gospel. He's already told us he came into his own, the Jewish people, and they did not receive him. And so there were those of the Jews represented by the ruling body of the day, the Sanhedrin, and he says they sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. If you look down at verse 24, we are told, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And so again, I've mentioned that body, that council, the Sanhedrin. Uh, this was the supreme council in charge of Jewish affairs in Roman Palestine at this time. In the first century. And uh, there were about 71 members of this council. They were located in Jerusalem. They consisted of the high priest. They consisted of elders and the scribes. And the high priest usually came from that sect known as the Sadducees. If you know me, if you've heard me, you know I'm going to say they were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so it consisted of the Sadducees. Um, but also there were the elders. They shared the views of the Sadducees. There were the scribes. And the scribes were mostly Pharisees. And so we see that in verse 14. Guess who was there? The Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, they were um, professors. They were lawyers. They were trained in theology. They were trained in uh, philosophy and jurisprudence. And so the Sanhedrin's task predominantly was to uh, arbitrate over matters when there was dispute over Jewish law. And so they had their own courts within the structure of Roman Palestine. Remember the Romans, that was the way they, they did things. They conquered and they were a republic. They let the people kind of rule in their way underneath the Roman law and structure politically. And so that's why in the Gospels under the trial of Christ we see the, the three or so trials of the Sanhedrin 
And uh, then Christ goes before Pontius Pilate. Remember, it was this body that would eventually charge Jesus with blasphemy, which in itself is blasphemy. And so in verse 19, we are told that this is the testimony of John at that time when the Jews sent priests and Levites and the Pharisees from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And so then the question is, well, why do they want to know this? What, what was their concern? Um, obviously, it is a concern. They're interrogating him. At least we kind of get that feeling as we read through this passage. And the other Gospels kind of help us to understand. And feel, they fill in the blanks here. Um, in Luke 3, John, remember, went out into all the region of the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. In Luke 3, 7, we are told the multitudes were coming to Him and being baptized by Him. And that these multitudes consisted of the common Israelites, the common people, tax collectors, even soldiers. And so John was a very powerful preacher. We find that in Matthew 3. And there was this anticipation in the air of the Messiah, God's anointed one. Remember, the Old Testament talks about the Lord and His anointed. Um, in the Old Testament, those who were anointed were prophets, they were priests, they were kings. But only one would hold all three offices. It would be the Messiah, the anointed to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. So He is our prophet, priest, and king. And, king. and so they were anticipating this because of John's preaching. And so because he was so popular, the Jews became a little concerned at least the rulers, the Sanhedrin, so they sent this delegation to come and inspect what it was he was saying, what he was doing, who he said that he was indeed. And so, they had to be careful, these Jewish leaders, because they didn't want to cause a ruckus with the Roman political leaders. They had to keep an eye on such movements. But also, according to Deuteronomy 18, uh, they saw it as their task to inspect those who called themselves prophets. Remember in Deuteronomy 18, God talks about the false prophet who prophesies in the name of false gods. Well, what was to happen to them? The death penalty. And so they came, they were inspecting his doctrine, what he was teaching, what he was practicing. But I think as well, if we read on, we'll know, as I've already indicated, what this Sanhedrin body would do. I think their motives, in part, were to protect their own power, their own positions in Israel. And so they ask these questions. Uh, who are you? Are you Elijah? And are you the prophet? Verse 19, verse 21. And so why then... In verse 21, we'll go back up to verse 20. Um, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Um, in, the, in the original there, there's an emphasis. John is saying, I myself am not the Christ. Some take that to mean he became a little livid with them, uh, perturbed um, in a good way. But he, nevertheless, he is emphatic. He's, he's saying, no, I am not the Christ. And then... 
In verse 21, they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask, are you the Christ, are you Elijah? Well, back in Malachi uh, chapter 4, in verse 5, God said to his people, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so before the Lord comes, he said that he would send Elijah. Remember Elijah, he was translated into glory, uh, that chariot of fire, and uh, he didn't die, he just went straight to heaven, so maybe he was going to come back in the same way they thought. And uh, that with uh, other passages of Scripture, we'll look at one in a moment, um, would indicate to the Jewish people at that time that Elijah would come even before the Messiah. And so, Elijah would be seen as the forerunner of the Messiah. That's in Malachi chapter 3. This is what God said in Malachi 3. Behold, verse 1, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Now that's talking about John the Baptist. But we are told there his messenger would come. Later in chapter 4 of Malachi, Elijah would come. Elijah the messenger. Then the Lord will come. And so this is what they were thinking. However, in Luke 1.17, the angel said that John would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So there you have scripture interpreting scripture. Scripture shedding light on the original intent of Scripture. The New Testament upon the Old. And the point is, no, it's not going to be actually Elijah, the prophet. But it's going to be a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist, the baptized her, as we've noted. And so Jesus would later call John Elijah in Matthew 17 and verse 12. And so we have to understand this is metaphorically, it's symbolic, it's typical, and that sort of thing. So even though Elijah was to come, he comes in the spirit of Elijah, this Elijah is John the Baptist. And so that's why they're asking, they're thinking literally perhaps that Elijah would come there in verse 21. So then they proceed to ask him, are you the prophet in verse 21? Of course, the answer is no. The prophet, maybe your translation translation says a prophet um, but it's the prophet and what are they asking there well back in Deuteronomy I'll just read it to you um, in that same passage 18 chapter 18 before it talks about the false prophets and what is to happen to them it says in verse 15 the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me Moses is speaking from your midst from your brethren. Him shall you hear. Does that ring a bell in the New Testament? Him shall you hear. Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. What? Hear him. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly. And it goes on. He says, I will raise up for them, verse 18, a prophet like you from among the brethren. And so, 
The Jewish people, I think, rightly understood that this prophet would be the Messiah. So there's this talk about Messiah. Maybe John the Baptist is the Messiah, or maybe he's Elijah. He comes before the Messiah, so that's why they come. They want to know. And by the way, these Jewish people, these leaders, they had the wrong concept of the Messiah. They were thinking of king only, pretty much. The deliverer from those who come into their land, the Romans, they would deliver or they would be delivered by this messianic king from the Roman armies and government. But we know that this Messiah was no physical or no king of merely a physical kingdom. And that was not his goal, his purpose. And so they come, they quiz him. Well, and then in verse 22, we have John's answer. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? I'm sorry, his answer is in verse 21. He simply says no. And just note how careful John is to answer these questions. I think he knows the severity of the questions and the answers that he gives. And so in verse 22, they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And so, here in verse 22, they dive a little deeper. We have the heart of the matter, the issue at hand. This is why they were sent to know who he is. What is he doing? Why is he doing this? Who exactly are you? So he answers in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one cry in the wilderness, make straight the way. Of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And so he refers here to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. Well, what does that say? Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain be brought low. The crooked places will be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So again, it's talking about the coming of John the Baptist. He comes to prepare the way for the Lord, the Lord Himself who will come, Malachi 3, He'll come down to His temple. And so that's John's purpose. But when you see the original context of Isaiah chapter 40 and what John says here, you, you should understand that this truly is a call to repentance. When the Bible talks about preparing the way for the Lord, make straight the way for the Lord, it's talking about an important person coming to town. And you have to go out, and especially in those days, you have to clear the roads, make sure that the king can come. Make straight the crooked paths. And so John is saying, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is the one. John is saying, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. And by the way, I'm just the voice. The Lord gave me the words to speak and I speak His words. And so what is the message? He's telling them, prepare your hearts 
Make your hearts ready to receive the Lord, the Lord of glory, the King of glory. Remove every obstacle in your heart to receive the one who is coming. Make straight the way of the Lord. And so, he's actually calling this delegation to repentance. And so we see how bold John was. He had to do the hard things as a preacher and prophet of God. No doubt motivated by love for them. And so he calls even them to repentance. Remember, in other places he says, do not think that you are going to be saved because you're Abraham's descendants. No God can raise up his children from these rocks. And he says, you brood of vipers in one place. That was part of his message. But his message is ultimately going to be, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so in verse 24, we get to the heart of their concern. It says, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah the prophet? They're concerned about his baptism. You know, it's like uh, license and registration, please. Who are you to be baptizing these people? He was from the Levitical priesthood. Remember whose father was, Zechariah, his mother Elizabeth. Um, but they wanted to know. Who had sent him, by the way? Did we approve of you coming out here? And This is not a license, by the way, for um, kind of the lone ranger preacher. Uh, perhaps here and there in the history of the church, God raises up such men. I think that's the case here, um, in part with, with John. But um, we do recognize legitimate callings. He was called by God himself. Again, part of that Levitical line. But I think these, these men saw him as a challenge to their authority. And so, in verse 26, he says, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And so notice what John does here. They're asking, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? He's already told them who he is, his, his purpose. He's the forerunner. And so now he begins to redirect the attention to whom? To Christ. To Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, concerning the baptism, he says, look, I baptize with water. But there's one greater among us. You know, he's going to baptize you with fire, he says, later. And there's one whom you do not know. He is in your midst. He is here now. Well, if John is the Elijah, who's he talking about? He's talking about the Messiah, the Lord Himself. And he says, He's preferred before me. But you see, these religious leaders, they will not hear it. As William Hendrickson wrote years ago, in their eagerness to expose false messiahs, they are ignoring the true Messiah. That is a fatal mistake. Eternally consequential. A fatal mistake. So in verse 27, we see John's humility. He says, it is he who coming after me is preferred before me. Remember, we've already seen what has been said about this. 
John was six months older or so than Jesus. John the Baptist came before Jesus. What is he talking about? He existed before me in eternity past, as we would put it. He's eternal. He's the second person of the Godhead. He is before me. And he is therefore preferred before me. And so he says, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. So, in those days, there were the teachers, the rabbis, and they had students, learners, disciples. And the disciples did serve them uh, in many different ways. Um, But there were servants, there were slaves in the houses, and there were things that only servants and slaves did. Washing feet is one of them. And so what John does here, he takes something that is too petty, even for a disciple, loosing the strap of a sandal of someone, because feet can get dirty, especially in those days. He takes something that's too petty for a disciple and says that even he is unworthy to perform that task. Is there any reason why Jesus said of John, among those born of women, no one is greater than John? But he goes on and says, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And so there in verse 28, it says these things were done in Bethabara, or Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The point is, it was outside of the city. People were coming and flocking to him. And this, of course, gives credibility and authenticity to uh, what was happening in John's ministry. And so then, as, as we think about that, I just want to make four points of application today uh, as we consider what we just walked through. We have several lessons. Perhaps there's more than what I have here, but I think these are sort of the, the highlights of the passage. So first of all, we have a lesson in pride. And we see that from this representative body, this delegation, who is so focused on the challenge to their authority, the challenge to who they were, what positions they held in Israel, that they did not see Jesus for who He really is. Remember, it was the Jewish people, the people of this body even, who would seek to kill Jesus. We find that out in John 7.10. It was them who would threaten anyone with excommunication from the synagogue if they confessed Jesus as the Christ. They would proceed to arrest Jesus in chapter 18. And as Matthew 26 Verse 59 says, they actually sought a false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none, but at last two false witnesses came forward. And so they were blind. The blind leading the blind. And and why? Ultimately, it was their pride. Their spiritual pride pride before God. They could not see Jesus as the Messiah, the King of glory, the Lord's anointed, and therefore the one who had come to redeem His people from their sins. 
And so they would cling to their church membership. Matthew 23. Uh, John 8 will bring this out. Jesus, he, he scathes them in Matthew 23. On the outside, they're whitewashed tombs, but on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones. They were church members, the visible church. They received the sign of church membership, but they were dead. And they were full of pride. And today, the same thing keeps men from coming to Jesus. Today, if you haven't come to Jesus, it is in part because of your pride. If you've heard the Gospel, you're stubborn and obstinate. That's why when we talk to people, it's because of their pride. They will not surrender their will for the will of God, the will of Christ. That's what you're doing when you come to Jesus. You're surrendering your will to His. And you can finally, from the heart, pray, Your will be done, not my will. Second, we see a lesson in the sovereignty of God. And this isn't as much the point of the text, but as, as I thought about this, this is powerful. I think it is, at least for me at this point in my life. Think about what is happening here and what has happened. So Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament, the last book in, our, in the Old Testament of our version of the Bible, our translation. And um, after that, there were 400 silent years, meaning God did not send any prophets to His people and the, the thing that, that Malachi prophesied about was the coming of John. So 400 years, John appears out of nowhere, takes these religious leaders by surprise, in a sense, and he preaches and he baptizes. Many flock to him. And so, this is all happening because of God's plan of salvation. And that takes us way back before He created the heavens and the earth. Ephesians 1 tells us that. We talk about the decree of God. And so in space and in time, after the fall, God is working all things. He's, he's bringing His people together so that the Messiah can come from His people. But even then, before the Messiah, there's John. John the Baptist. So God has His hand on the life of John the Baptist. And even from His parents' perspective, He came late. Later in life, when his mother was of old age. But in God's timing, it was at just the right time. And as we see in the pages of the Gospels, John was obviously convinced of his calling. And so that means that in God's providence, he had a purpose in his life. He was right where he needed to be on God's timetable. What about your calling? To say that God has orchestrated all things. That God is indeed Lord of all. Means that you have a purpose. Because you're created in God's image, which is marred by the fall, yes. But you're an image bearer of God. You have purpose. We talk about our chief end. 1 Corinthians 10.31 It says whether you eat or drink, or do anything, do all to the glory of God. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, Romans eleven thirty six. We were created by God. He sustains us. Why? Because we're to be presented to Him, to present ourselves to Him for worship 
and glory and honor and to enjoy Him. But we can only do that through Christ Jesus. Only Jesus can restore that image back. Only Jesus can wipe away our record and make us not guilty before God. Only Jesus can give us His righteousness so that we may stand holy and righteous before Him. And He does that when we prepare a way, prepare the way for Him to come into our hearts. But even as Christians, we talk about calling. Our life calling, our life purpose. It's not to be a prophet. Maybe young men, old men, maybe it it is to be a pastor, an elder, a leader in the church. Um, But it might be a mother, a wife, a spouse, an engineer, a professor, a sanitation engineer. We have a problem in our county. Some of us do. We have with sanitation pickup, a lack of labor. That's a whole other can of worms. But I was talking with someone about this and they said, hey, what if you had to smell trash all day? Would you want to do that job? I said, if I were starving, I would do it. And I said, there is dignity in this, this line of work. We, we don't need to live like the roaches or where roaches would live. God talks about order and cleanliness and all of this. And so the point is, you, you have a specific calling in life. God has placed us right now today in this crazy world for a purpose. To bring glory and honor to Him. To be salt and light. In a world that is rotten and in decay and that lives in the darkness. By the way, John was in the wilderness. Literally, it was a wilderness. Figuratively, it was a wilderness. And John is calling God's people to the Savior. You know, as I think about this whole idea of purpose and God's providence in my own life, That's what keeps me going. Whether it's getting out of bed, doing the work of the ministry. You know, Ecclesiastes talks about this. You know, is this what life's all about? This cycle? Uh, In one sense, yeah. But ultimately, it's to know God and to enjoy Him through Jesus Christ. And He has placed us in a certain place at a certain time, for a specific reason. And when you understand that, as John Calvin wrote years ago, you will be a productive Christian for God. Mothers, don't let the world lie to you and tell you that, oh, you're just a mom. There's a reason for that old proverb, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Paul talks about this in Timothy. That um, you mothers have this bearing on children like no other. You have, I mean, fathers, yes, we're the head and all that. But as Christian parents, we have the opportunity as God's stewards to, to mold and shape our children as God blesses that. So whatever we do, we have that purpose. So there's a lesson there in the sovereignty of God. And then third, we have a lesson in humility And uh, this comes from John. I think that's part of the point here is John's humility. In verse 23, he says, I'm I'm a voice. That's all he is. He's the Lord's instrument. He's in the Lord's hands. He served a purpose. Later he will say, I must decrease, he must increase. 
So they ask who he is, and in verse 26, he points to Jesus. You know, multitudes, throngs were coming to it. And did he say, well, I'm the one who put these sermons together, and I went to seminary, I, I learned how to preach, and, and so did he take all the credit for it? Nope. Just a voice. And that's the job of every preacher, is to point to the Savior. Unashamedly, with conviction, and godly Christian love. Notice his posture in verse 27. We've already referred to that. He had a right self-image and he had a right Christ image. And this is what I mean by that. When you see who you are before God, as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, you will see God in His holiness, His splendor, His majesty. You will see yourself in your puniness. Although you're created in God's image, yes. A little lower than the angels, yes. But also sinfully. You have become because of Adam's transgression and your own transgressions. And so like Isaiah, when you see the holiness, perfection, and righteousness of God, you say, I'm undone. I'm dead. I'm cursed. I'm damned. But remember what God did. He went down to Isaiah. He took a coal from the altar, applied it to his lips because Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I have a dirty, filthy heart. But God takes the coal, and that coal comes off of the altar. The altar is where the blood is shed, where it represents the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So symbolically, He takes the the coal, applies it to His lips. He cleanses Him through what Jesus would do later on. And so we understand who Christ is. And when we see Christ in His glory like Peter, he, He says, get away from me, I'm a sinner. Thomas looks at Jesus at the end of this gospel and he sees Christ as the risen Lord of glory, God, man, and he says, my Lord and my God. And so John points to the glory of Christ and when the spotlight is on us, beloved, it's our task to take the spotlight and turn it towards Jesus. You know, whether it's work, you do a good job. Or you preach a good sermon. Or whatever it is, you do great homework. You pass the test with flying colors, you get good grades. What do you say? Good, the teacher says, good job, Johnny. And then what can you say? How can you get Christ's glory? Praise God, teacher. Praise the Lord. I remember Morton Smith, some of you may know of him. He started Reform Seminary. He started Greenville Seminary where I went. And uh, while I was there, they, they had this celebration dinner for him. And people were clapping. And he sat in his chair. His face turned red because he was embarrassed of all the attention. And he just did this. Pointed up to heaven. And so we give God the glory in our humility. Last, we have this lesson of confessing Christ. Now we're going to talk more, Lord willing, about how to share the gospel. Jesus is going to show us in this gospel how we're to share Him. But for now, John confessed Christ. He witnessed for Christ. In verse 9, he gave his testimony. In verse 20, he confessed. He did not deny. And so as Luke 28 or 12 and verse 8 says, 
that when we confess Jesus before men, He will confess us before the angels of God. And so I ask you, have you made this confession? Have you prepared your heart? Have you made the crooked way straight for Christ to enter into your heart? And received Him, repented of your sins, had a new view of yourself before God, and cried out for His mercy in Jesus Christ. But that is the way and the only way to salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And Christian, what is your testimony before God? Is it a good one? Or a bad one? Or are you flying under the radar? We all have testimonies to one degree or another. And so in God's providence, when the committee, in whatever shape, form, or fashion it comes to us, uh, may it be our prayer that, that we, like John, confess and do not deny. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your mercy to us. We thank You for this example of John the Baptist. His calling, Your hand upon him, his boldness, his faith. And Lord, we pray that You would grant unto us a strong faith that we might be bold and yet humble at the same time, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He is the Messiah. We pray in His name. Amen.